Um, today we're continuing our series, Ducks in a Row, and we're talking about how to sort of get our priorities right in this season and this next season. And uh, whether you've just started a new school year, we had some kids start this week, we'll have some kids start next week, some of you have already been starting. Um, maybe you're just in, again, season of transition with your job, or you're sort of going back to the office, or whatever it might be. Uh, in these new and changing seasons, it's important to have our priorities straight. By definition, having our priorities right uh, is sort of important at all times, but specifically, I think even more so in these times of change. When, when sort of other things are changing around us, we need to make sure we stick to what our priorities should be. Um, and last week, we talked about our reactions as one of the priorities and kind of took a look at uh, the story, that, or rather the sermon, the most popular sermon that Jesus gave, the Sermon on the Mount, and sort of looked at it through the, the, frame, and the, the frame of reference and the lens through which our reactions, the way that we react to people, the way we see things, that Jesus addressed our reactions when people wrong us. Jesus addressed our reactions when people try to sort of instigate or cause problems in our lives. Jesus addressed our reactions to our enemies. And our reactions, maybe this week you notice your reactions in some places. You notice your reactions in the car. You notice your reactions to your kids or your family, your spouse or whoever. And you notice reactions and, and it sort of jumped out to us a little bit. And for me, I noticed a few times where my reactions, oh, uh, I wish I would have reacted a little bit differently. Um, the problem for most of us when it comes to our reactions is that Jesus sort of consistently viewed um, these opportunities, these, these moments where people treated him unfairly or things didn't happen the way that he wanted them to or he was treated unkindly. He constantly and consistently viewed those things as opportunities. Now, we don't typically think of them as opportunities, right? We think of them as like bad things that happened to us and I wish that would never happen. And yet Jesus sort of modeled the way to say, when these bad things happen to you, when something unjust happens to you, it's an opportunity. And the reason that it's an opportunity, our main point from last week is that our reactions are opportunities to show others how God will react to them. That's sort of what Jesus did. Jesus came as an example uh, to show us who God is and what God is like. And by his reactions, we can see how he will react to us. And Jesus sort of paved the way. And we now have the opportunity to help guide people towards God because of how we react. And that's a big responsibility. But that's a very important thing. That as we get into this new school year, as you go back to your office and see coworkers, we see your boss, your reactions when things don't go right might be even bigger than the reactions that you have or the actions that you take when things are going right, you don't really have to react, it's just sort of happening. But when you react, that shows a little bit about who we really are. Um, so um, that first duck in the row is, is the first priority of reactions. The second thing that we're going to talk about today is our integrity. And, and this idea of integrity really can have a, a disproportionate impact on our lives and on the people around us. Uh, it just has so much uh, importance in our lives. And, and integrity is sort of that resolve or the courage to do the right thing mostly just because it's the right thing. Now, there might be some sort of reward or some sort of benefit, but mostly you're doing it for doing the right thing. And integrity starts with making the decision to do the right thing, and it's really sort of completed when you actually do the right thing, right? It's one thing to make the decision that you're going to do the right thing, but integrity sort of follows it through and says you actually do do the right thing. Because many of us, if we're honest, if integrity was just about choosing to do the right thing, we, we've chosen to do the right thing, but then we didn't actually go through and follow through with that. And integrity sort of includes the idea that we have to follow through and actually do the right thing. And on top of that, it also includes the idea that you have to do the right thing or you choose to do the right thing, even when it's going to cost you something, when there's not necessarily a benefit to you. In fact, many times you make a decision to do the right thing knowing that it's going to cost you something. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. 
Um, there are a couple different types of integrity. One of the types of integrity that I think is sort of helpful as we, as we think about integrity in our own personal lives is structural integrity. Uh, this building has structural integrity right now. And structural integrity just says it's the ability of a structure to withstand its intended load without failing due to fatigue or fracture. And that's, uh, that's kind of the, just the definition, that buildings, we rely on buildings that have structural integrity to, to withhold, withstand their load while we're in them, while we're under them, while we're walking around in them. And unfortunately, we've seen uh, recently, not too long ago, we've seen big, op big examples of when a building didn't have structural integrity, when there was a fracture, it was, the building was fatigued and it wasn't cared for properly, and, and we see what happens in those moments, and it can't carry its intended load that when a load-bearing structure fails, the load is transferred somewhere, right? The load is transferred somewhere, and it's potentially gonna overload the supporting or the surrounding support structures. That that load, that when it sort of fails, when the integrity gives way, there are other things around it that are gonna eventually take on that load and potentially be overloaded by that. And the failure of one part impacts the failure of the whole thing and the other parts of it around it because stress and the load is sort of transferred to other parts. Now, as you may guess, the same is true for you and for me as well, that when we don't have integrity, it's transferred to the people around us. It's not just us, it's transferred to other people, that a failure of personal integrity adds stress to the people around us. And this isn't new, but it can be sort of easy to overlook this, especially uh, when you're being tempted in the moment to, to sort of sacrifice your integrity because something's happening that you don't want to happen or you're not willing to give up that thing that's going to cost you if you, are, if you hold to your integrity. Um, and it can seem so difficult sometimes to hold on to our personal integrity in moments where we're being tempted and there's other options and other things. And we sometimes in those moments just think, it's just going to impact me. And we forget and we sort of try to minimize the fact that it is going to impact other people around us. And, and the thing is that no matter how old or how young you are, you've probably seen this, right? You've seen some way that this played out, whether it was with your parents and, and there was a, a lack of integrity in a decision that they made or something that they decided to do. Uh, maybe it's with your siblings, that your siblings made a bad choice that lacked integrity and it impacted and rippled through your family. Uh, maybe it's at your job, a boss made a terrible uh, not, not, uh, a decision without integrity and it sort of just rippled through and people lost their jobs maybe over it. That, that lack of personal integrity really does impact other people. And this is, this is something that uh, I think we know intuitively, especially if you work in schools in any capacity, or you work with kids, I should say, maybe in any capacity. When you see a kid that's normally sort of good and doing well and, and can you know, handle their stuff, uh, all of a sudden they come in and something is just like off. You can just tell that they're, they're, they're misbehaving, they're, they're not doing their homework, they're, all, you know, they're not doing bad on the test. And if you see them, you just see that your first reaction is to say, something's probably going on at home, right? There's something probably going on elsewhere that's now impacting that kid. And the thing is, we just can't kid ourselves. We can't kid ourselves to think that the load isn't transferred to other people, that when we lack integrity, that load and that stress is transferred to other people. The consequences to our actions are never isolated, right? But in those moments, we try to convince ourselves that they will be. So what is integrity? I want to give you a quick definition. Integrity is doing what you should do even when it costs you. Doing what you should do even when it costs you. Doing the right, the honorable, the noble thing because it's the right and honorable and noble thing 
to do, regardless of the consequences, regardless of if it's going to cost you something or if you're going to benefit from it. Doing the right thing is the right thing that we should do. And the key word is there is should. And that's a little bit up for interpretation. I know some people would say, well, what you should do might not be what I should do. And, and there's maybe some truth to that in some decisions. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's just something inside of us. And we're going to talk about what that is in just a second. But there's something inside of us that sort of pushes us to what we should do. And we know most times, there are times we don't, but there are most times we know what we should do, how, how we should treat people, the decisions that we should make. We sort of just have this thing in us that tells us what we should do. And, and Paul actually talks about this, and he says that the people that don't even know God, the people that aren't even following God or don't have you know, the Old Testament law, the, the, you know, sort of the exact what they should do, there's something inside of them, Paul says. He says this, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them and tell them they are doing, or sorry, accuse them or tell them they are doing right. That we have this internal thing inside of us that we would suggest as Jesus followers that God has put in our hearts, God has put in our lives, and, and put in all of us too, not just people that are following him, but all of us, that we have this internal sense of what we should do, that we shouldn't kill people, that we shouldn't try to hurt people, we shouldn't say mean things to people. We sort of just have this on our hearts, and, and God put it there for us to help sort of know what we should do. And that last part is kind of important. For their conscience, for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So while you and I usually know what we should do, we don't always do what we should do, right? We don't always do what we should do. Uh, and this is sort of the first challenge to, to, to being a person of integrity is that we just don't always do what we should do. We know what we should do, but we don't actually follow through and do it. It's, again, one thing to make the decision to do the right thing, but it's another to actually follow through and do it. And worse yet on this point, um, we are very quick to point out when other people did something they shouldn't do, aren't we? <laughs> but we're not so quick to point out our own problems. We're so quick to give ourselves excuses for why we didn't do what we should do, and yet we don't give very many excuses to other people as well. Um, the second challenge to being a person of integrity is our personal integrity always impacts other people. So sort of going back to our previous point, that it always is going to impact other people. That if there's a breach in our integrity, that I can say it's sort of like my own personal decision, it's my own personal integrity, but the reality is that that breach of integrity is going to ripple and impact other people. The good news is that the opposite is true as well. That if you are a person of integrity, it will have a ripple effect and impact other people as well. It's not just for the negative, it's also for the positive. And this is, um, uh, this is just an important point that we're going to kind of come back to a little bit. And we're going to see in the story today that this sort of has a ripple effect on other people. That a lack of personal integrity always impacts other people. So today, again, we're going to look at a story that I think is maybe one of the most powerful sort of characters. Um, and this spe specific story is maybe the secondary story, but um, it's an important story for us to look at as we talk about integrity and having integrity in our lives. And the main character is going to model doing something in the face of incredible um, potential consequences that we will never probably experience. But it's helpful for us to see this sort of extreme example and how um, this character does this. And to be honest, students, teenagers, pay attention right now, anybody younger, this story is somebody who makes this decision in these incredible face of these incredible consequences who is a teenager as well. So please don't think that you gotta wait until you're an adult. And I'll be honest, at, at times in my spiritual journey, I thought, oh yeah, I'll start kind of doing some of that more spiritual stuff or make those hard decisions when I'm an adult and I'll just pass over this season of being a teenager and just sort of do the thing that I wanna do. Don't do that. Because as we're gonna see, the decision that this teenager makes as a teenager 
has consequences into his 70s. It sets a pattern in his life. It sets a, a behavior in his life that, that will continue to help him through the years. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1. If you haven't figured out, it's the book of Daniel. We're talking about Daniel today. Um, you can follow along the Bible app. If you have that, if you don't, you can head to Bible.com app. Find the notes there as well. Um, so around 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he, he defeats the Egyptians, he defeats the Assyrians, uh, and then he so, sort of shows up in Judah, which is sort of the southern part of Israel. And uh, Jehoiakim was the king at the time. And so we start in verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now Nebuchadnezzar took some of those objects and he put them back in the treasure house of his God, which was Marduk at the time. We're going to continue to talk about that in a second. We'll reference a little bit later. But, but he also likely took King Jehoiakim back uh, to Babylon as sort of a, a collection of kings, that he would sort of collect the kings that he had conquered and take them back and sort of show them off of, these are the kings that I defeated. So that's kind of an interesting little note. Verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. <clears throat> Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if nothing else, he was a little bit strategic in this, that when he went to a new town and destroyed it, or uh, conquered it, I should say, he wouldn't just destroy it. He wouldn't just kill everybody off. He was very strategic, and he would take the, the wealthy, the, the smartest, the, the brightest people from the area, and he would take them back to Babylon to help sort of integrate into his culture and to help hopefully support and grow his culture in Babylon. And he would take the most well-educated and all those different things, and he would use them in his uh, city to help make it a great city. And he would also sort of use this as a little bit of a hostage situation because he would take these kids back to Babylon and tell the people in the, the city that he conquered, you know, hey, make sure you behave well because I have your kids um, over here, right? So if you behave, they'll just continue to live. But if you don't, you know, maybe something will happen to them. And so he takes these captives back to Babylon and he's going to change their names and sort of turn them into representatives for his empire, for his city. And consequently, Babylon had a pretty diverse population in a sense, because he had all these different places that he had conquered and brought people back from, which uh, actually probably improved the city in some ways. And so Nebuchadnezzar uh, sort of would boast about all the different people in his city because he had conquered all those people. It was sort of a visual thing as well for him. Uh, verse four, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Again, he's sort of getting the best and the brightest and bringing them back to his city to train them up. Um, now, if you're a boy in Jerusalem in this time with Nebuchadnezzar, who's just taken over your city and, and, and defeated the army, um, of all the options that you have, this option might not be the worst one because being taken off to Babylon to be trained and to, and to be uh, developed into a representative of Babylon compared to the other options of maybe just being left to die and you, know, you don't have anything in your city, maybe your parents are killed, or, or, or maybe you're taken back to Babylon, but you're going to work in the mines, you're going to work in, in construction, you're going to work very difficult work, you're going to be just a, a free soldier that if you die, it doesn't really matter too much. Like There's a lot of other bad options. And so this option of, of those two options, or those many options, this option is not necessarily the worst option. It's going to ensure that he's probably going to, the, the boy is going to live on whatever happens. He says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon, and the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine 
from his own, from his own kitchens. So not only, as we sort of think about going back to college, not only, is, um, the, not only are these boys going to have like luxury dorms and live in the palace, but it also comes with a meal plan. <laughs> and it's a nice meal plan because it's from the king's own kitchens. Uh, and so um, when we read this in, in modern times, we sort of just think like not a big deal. We, we read this in America, we think not a big deal. When we read this in one of the wealthiest parts of the world, we sort of think this isn't a big deal. But you have to remember, in ancient times, most people were living on the verge of starvation every day. That, that having not enough food was not something that occasionally happened. It happened frequently and, and maybe regularly throughout people's lives. That this was a big deal to have food and have a place to stay. That's a big deal. Because you couldn't just keep food the same way that we keep food, right? And so you could only keep a little bit of food or you could only keep a certain type of food, mostly bread. Uh, you couldn't have all these other things because they would eventually just spoil. And food insecurity in ancient times was huge. And so for, for these boys to have this opportunity, if they would go with, with the King Nebuchadnezzar, obviously you're leaving your family behind. Those are all big things. But he's, they're guaranteed, these boys are going to be guaranteed to have a meal plan. Um, so they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now we sort of blend the names of this. You may have heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We sort of blend like Daniel's Hebrew name with these other boys' Babylonian names, as we're going to see in just a minute. But basically those are the same characters that we're talking about. Were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, which we don't really reference that much, but Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. And we sort of, again, you don't use these names, we sort of combine them, Daniel's Hebrew name and the other boy's um, Babylonian names. But basically in this moment, this is something that's very significant that basically uh, that the king and the chief of staff are renaming these boys to sort of show that they have authority over them, right? To show that they have the privilege and the, and the right to rename these, these boys because they're sort of property of theirs, in a sense, is what they're trying to say. Now, some of you have maybe done something similar where you got a pet, you adopted a pet, or somebody gave you a pet, and it already had a name, and you're like, ah, I don't know about that name. And so you renamed it, right? And you had the authority over that pet, and so you had that opportunity to do that. And that's sort of the same thing that they're trying to say that they have the authority over Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it was, again, another reminder that, that Nebuchadnezzar has got authority over you. He took you from Babylon. He's cap captivated your people, and he's going to um, be in authority over you. And this is where the story takes a little bit of a turn. But to be honest, the part of the story that takes a little bit of a turn is the only reason we actually know the story of Daniel. That what happens next is where the, the turn sort of happens, but without the turn, we would have no reason to even know who Daniel is because there was many other people who were just like Daniel probably in this moment that we don't know about. But what Daniel does next is what sort of sets him up for the reason that we know him, not the reason that he did it. He didn't do it so that we would know him, but he does something that again sets us up for our discussion today. Verse 8, but Daniel was determined. But Daniel was determined. Again, in this time, and when Daniel gets taken to Babylon, he's probably a teenager. I'm not exactly sure exactly how old. 15 to 17 is what a lot of people sort of think. But basically, he's a teenager. He's, he's a young person. He's not experienced in life. He's still very young. And Daniel makes this decision to be determined, which in Hebrew, this sort of has the idea that he set his heart on something. He directed his heart, is also another way to say it, that he directed his heart, he directed his mind to do something specific. And it also kind of has the idea of, of a memory attached to it, okay? So continue on. But Daniel was determined not to defile 
himself. Now, the word defile, we don't use very much, I don't think. Um, defile sort of has the idea of polluting or staining something, that Daniel would direct his mind and guide his heart to make a decision to not pollute or stain his life or not do the wrong thing. Verse 8, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Now, if we pause at this point and just were sort of giving advice to a teenager, a teenage boy, in fact, um, and saying, well, maybe that's not such a good idea to not take the food and drink from the king, because Daniel, this is a pretty good deal, especially in ancient times where you're not guaranteed food. It's probably a good idea for you just to take the food. It's, it's, you know, it kind of you're away from your family or away from your religion and your God was sort of in Israel. But let's be honest, there's some evidence that maybe your God isn't as strong as the God of the Babylonians, Marduk, because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, as a representative of Marduk, took things from the temple of your God and took people from the nation of God. And so maybe you just need to sort of adapt to your culture, adapt to the surroundings around you. And, and there's a place for that. But as we see, Daniel's, Daniel makes up his mind. And why is this such a big deal for Daniel? Why does Daniel decide, I'm going to be determined, I'm going to set my mind to this thing. Well, many of us are familiar with a, a, a prayer, something similar to, God, please bless this food to nourish our bodies, right? Some of us maybe pray that kind of prayer. To be honest, in our culture, I think we probably say it a little too passively. We don't necessarily look at what we're actually eating, if God can really bless that food to nourish our bodies. But that's a whole other discussion, probably for another time. But we don't really think about this too much. But when we're praying that kind of a prayer, we're sort of establishing an order through which we think the food is going to help us, right? It, it comes from God that all food is grown because God allows the crops to grow. He provides rain. That God is sort of sovereign and supreme over everything. And so it comes from God. And God helps that food to grow, which then goes into our bodies. And then we have health. And again, because ancient people were on starvation and on the verge of starvation pretty frequently, uh, they would look to this very regularly and look to God and say, God, I need you to help provide something. They were dependent on God providing rain and providing food and, and to helping their bodies. The thing is, in Babylonian culture, this would have been a little bit of a different starting place, that it would have started with Marduk, their God. And so if this food that Daniel was going to be given from Nebuchadnezzar's kitchen, this was going to be blessed by Marduk. That Marduk provided this food, that Marduk helped provide the rain that would grow the crops that would provide this food, that Marduk was sort of over everything, that Marduk defeated these other gods, defeated these other nations, and we're looking to him for our source of strength and food. And so the food would go into their bodies, their bodies would then become healthy, and Daniel thought, if I'm smart, if I'm strong, if I'm healthy, then they're going to think that it's somehow Marduk that helped make that happen. And I just can't go along with that. I just can't go along with saying that Marduk should get the credit for what's happening in his life. So, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. That Daniel basically said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that decision. I shouldn't do that. And so I'm not going to do that. Now, a few points about Daniel sort of determining or making up his mind, directing his mind to do this. Number one, again, just remember Daniel was a teenager, which I think we have to keep in mind in this moment because as adults, now as an adult with kids myself, I, I sort of look at this and think, oh, like, I don't know that I want my son to tell somebody like that, <laughs> that he's not going to take the food. I want my son to live. I don't want my son to die. And in that moment, yet Daniel is still, as a teenager, he makes this decision. He somehow is able to see clearly enough, maybe because his brain's not fully developed. I don't know. But he's willing to take this risk on of being willing to die for this decision to do the right thing in this moment. Uh, number two, Daniel did this before he knew his story. 
Right? We know the story of Daniel. Many of us know how the story ends. In fact, there's some really amazing stories that come after this, in fact. That Daniel had this amazing story. He didn't know his story at this point, right? He didn't know how, what was going to happen. He didn't know what the ending was going to look like. And sometimes we sort of think as, as sort of a hero of the faith of Daniel, well, yeah, of course Daniel could do that because, you know, Daniel's Daniel. But Daniel made this decision, again, before he ever knew what his story was going to be like, before the whole world knew his name, before churches around the world are some way talking about Daniel. There's many churches around the world talking about Daniel probably today. Before he even knew that was going to happen, he made the right decision. And we need to keep that in mind as well. Uh, number three, uh, I think somehow Daniel probably was aware of this, that one breach of integrity can lead to another, right? But I think Daniel knew that there was some sort of a slippery slope here, right? That if you have one breach of integrity, it can often lead to another breach of, an integri of, of integrity. And then not only that, number four, the first breach makes the second breach easier, right? Isn't that just true? We can all sort of think about, well, I already did it once, so I might as well keep doing that. Well, I know I sort of said that I was not going to ever do this in my life, but now that I've done it once, like it's not that big of a deal because I, you know, I've already broken it, so let's just keep doing whatever the thing is. And I know that my teachers and my church and my family and my parents told me not to do this, but, but I did it and I went there, I did that thing, and so now it's just sort of easier to do. And we know this, not just from human nature, but we also sort of know this from science, that that first breach makes the second breach easier to do. And then the second breach sort of becomes a pattern. It becomes a direction, and very quickly it can become a habit, an addiction as well. Um, and we continue on verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. And this is another important point of Daniel's integrity, that Daniel didn't just sort of pretend to sort of like pass the food under the table to the dogs or whoever and just sort of get rid of the food and then, you know, somehow go find something else to eat. He didn't do this in secret. He didn't try to hide it because that would have been another breach of his integrity, right? That would have been sort of being deceptive. And so Daniel goes to the place where he actually goes and talks to the appropriate people. He, he addresses the appropriate people with his concerns of why he's not going to actually do this. And by Daniel making the right decision and not just hiding behind the right decision, but discussing it with the appropriate people, by doing those things, Daniel is giving himself an opportunity and he's giving God an opportunity to work through him and to do something in his life. That when we're tempted to sacrifice our integrity to, to sort of get ahead, when we're tempted to sacrifice our integrity to get something that we don't think we can get any other way, when we're tempted to sacrifice our integrity, we actually start to close the door on what God could potentially do through that decision. Now, God can obviously open any door that he wants to open, but we're sort of in some ways restricting and, and stopping, maybe even hindering what God might want to do through us. But when we go about making the right decision and talking to the appropriate people, we sort of open our hands. We open the door for the possibility that God could do something in us. And I would suggest maybe not the possibility, but the, the likelihood that God will do something in us. Now, it might not be exactly what happens in the story if you know what comes next, but God is going to do something in us if he doesn't do something through us. That God's going to do something in us to help us have this habit of doing the right thing that helps build on itself so that the next time you will do the right thing, even when the consequences may, might potentially be high. And they might even be higher the next time, but you've done it, the right thing before, so it helps you. Um, continue on verse 9. Now God... So Daniel had made the decision not to eat the food. He went and talked to the people that he needed to talk to and try to, you know, come up with a, a different plan to say, I'm not wanting to eat these unacceptable foods. 
Verse 9, now God, because Daniel had done the right thing, done what he should have done, and went about it the right way, he again left the door open for God to do something in his life. Now, there are no guarantees. Let me be very clear about this. There are no guarantees that if you do the right thing, that now God will show up and do something like what God is about to do. But even though there's no guarantees, it is still worth the risk, as we're going to see in just a second. That doing the right thing, even when it costs you, provides an opportunity for God to work. Verse 9, Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, he has got a valid concern, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, of my Lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Another translation says, have my head, which is something that we sort of just use as just sort of a figure of speech for us. But for this guy, it was not a figure of speech. This was real. Like, you really could lose your head if you disobey the king. And so he's saying that this valid thing, like, if, if, you, if I don't let you eat this food, if I allow you to eat something else, and you become pale, then I'm going to die. I'm going to be the one that's just killed, right? So verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. That basically he's saying, again, another act of integrity saying, we'll take responsibility for actions. Whatever happens, we will take responsibility for what happens. But I want to propose this other thing. We, we don't want to see you suffer. So can we provide another option? Verse 14, the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king, which we sort of know now, like, of course, like he's, they're eating vegetables and drinking water, and these other people are eating probably some red meat and all kinds of unhealthy things that we would classify as unhealthy now, right? And sort of just makes sense. But somehow Daniel knew not to do that, and Daniel made this decision to do the right thing. Verse 16, so after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. Verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. Verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. In verse 21, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. And so basically, between Daniel being taken away to Babylon and not eating the food and not doing what, what uh, the, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar was wanting him to do, and this, this reign of Cyrus, there was about 66 years between that time. That, that's something that we just sort of overlook. But in this moment, Daniel makes this decision, and he stays in this position for 60-some years. That in this moment, Daniel makes this decision of integrity, and then after that, he has the ear. He's with the king, the, the, most, the three most powerful kings, because first it was, um, it was Nebuchadnezzar, he dies, Darius comes, Darius goes, and then there was Cyrus comes along. Those three men Daniel had influence on over these 60 years. 
And he's a man of integrity influencing these, these kings. Now, hopefully, you know, he had a significant influence, and, and there's probably some, some evidence of that. But he was in that opportunity because he made a difficult decision, a decision to have integrity in the face of extreme consequences. And, and that's an important point, I think, that we, we probably don't uh, think about too much. So thinking about us, though, what about us? What about you? What about me? Have you made up your mind to do what you should do. In this season of transition, when you have maybe some new friends, seeing some old friends that you haven't seen for a while, going back to a boss that doesn't have necessarily the same integrity you do, uh, being around employees that don't have the same integrity you do, uh, whatever the case is, are you making up your mind? Are you guiding your heart, directing your heart like Daniel did, to make the right choice, to do what you know you should do because it's so easy in seasons of transition to sort of adjust just like Daniel he was in a season of transition he could have just said oh, yeah I'm just going to sort of go with the culture and go with the things around me and in some ways he did he allowed his name to be changed his appearance probably changed but he drew the line at a point where he said this is too far that I know I shouldn't do this I can't give credit to another God I know that I need to worship my God Yahweh and so in that moment he drew a line he decided not to do this thing so I think we just need to name something that is just sort of the reality, especially sometimes for teenagers, let's just be honest, sometimes this is really hard, but deciding to do the right thing, it will be limiting. It's just name it, it's going to be limiting at times. And that's in a, a, sometimes a bad way where you wish you could do other things, but you can't because you're deciding to do the right thing. But there's also another aspect of it limiting you that we're gonna talk about in just a second. That deciding to do the right thing, even if it costs you, it will mean that you miss out on some stuff, right? There will be some opportunities that you just will not be able to participate in. You will not be able to be around certain people. You will not be able to, if you're deciding to do the right thing, you will miss out on some things. But those of us who are a little bit older, <laughs> those of us who maybe have a little bit more life experience, no fault of your own teenagers or young, just life, right? You just maybe need some more life experience. But for those of us who are older, we know that if integrity had been our guide, had been guiding and directing us as teenagers, that we might have missed out on some things that we continue to think about now. Some memories of hurting some people that we wish we could just erase. But we can't. They're just still there. Deciding to do the right thing will limit you from having those memories at times. Uh, deciding to do the right thing means that you might be limited on the amount of shame that you feel. Some of us have felt shame about decisions that we made because integrity was not guiding our decision. And now we sort of have this shame that, that we think about. Uh, it might have missed out on uh, hurting other people again or doing some things that you wish you could go back and reverse and, and take away from other people. That if we had let integrity be our guide like Daniel did of doing the thing that he knew he should do, then maybe we would have missed out on some things. But maybe we would have missed out on some things that we are glad we would have missed out on along the way. Because I don't think many of us wish we could go back to being teenagers or being younger or being whatever last week even. I don't think many of us wish we could go back and live those years over having less integrity, right? <laughs> I don't think there's many situations where we think, oh, I wish I would have had less integrity in that moment. I wish I would have done that other thing that I knew was wrong. I, I, I don't think any of us think that way, but many of us, could look back and say, I wish I would have had more integrity in those moments. So as we think about what, what our world needs, there's a lot of things that our world needs. I mean, we could go down a list of all kinds of things that we could talk about. And at the sake of being political, we're not going to go down the list of things because I don't want to go down that road. But there are important priorities and things that our world really needs that we have control over, whether it's policy, government, doesn't have to do with that. Personally, we have control over these things. And one of them is being 
a person of integrity. That we need more people of integrity in our world right now. Because there are so many examples of people not having integrity. I came across one this last week that I'm not going to highlight the person because I, I don't want to, you know, it's not about highlighting the person, but there's a, a tech investor in Silicon Valley who, who wrote an essay a while back about the importance of building more homes in our area. Now, this is not going to get political about whether NIMBY or YIMBY or any of that kind of stuff. That's not the point of it. But I want us to, to see through this example that, that making the decision to do the right thing and then actually doing it is incredibly important. So this guy writes this article about what we should be doing in the Bay Area about putting more houses out there. By his own admission, he's saying this is what we should do. His own standard, right? Not necessarily, again, a universal standard, but he's saying that. However, just recently, there's been some discussion about adding homes in his neighborhood. <laughs> and it's been made very public because he wrote a letter to the city council saying, do not build homes in this area because it will cost me too much. He, he literally said it will cost him too much. His property values will go down. There will be too much noise in the area. It'll increase traffic. He says, yeah, we should build more homes, but I don't want it to be here because it's going to cost me too much. He, he acknowledged in his own words, this is what we should do, but he didn't actually follow through with it. And now, again, regardless of your position on that, whatever, Nobody really thinks he has much integrity, right? Nobody's going to look at him and say, yeah, that's a person that we should follow. And there's many examples of that. That's just one person. We can look at our own lives of, of opportunities where we should have done the right thing. We said what, the sh what we should do, but then we didn't actually do it because it was going to cost us something. The world needs more examples of people who are willing to do what they should do, even if it's going to cost them in the long run. And when we do that, as Jesus followers, beyond just sort of a, a national standard or a community standard that's secular in the world, when we do that as Jesus followers, when we decide to do the right thing, even when it costs us, it actually provides an opportunity for God to work. Now, God might not, again, fix the situation and remove the consequences, remove the cost from your life, but he's going to work in you at the very least. And he's probably going to work in the people around you. Because remember, when you have integrity, it also impacts the people around you. Just like when you lack integrity, it impacts the people around you.